Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded, recently hitting 6 million listens. Support us by buying a copy of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a small donation. In return, we'll give you the chance to nominate a guest and even win lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. Find out more at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin. Welcome to Masterclass U.S. Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the U.S. market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us each week to learn more about the U.S. market. Hello, welcome to Masterclass U.S. Wine Market. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Mark Guiladu to the Italian Wine Podcast. A recently dubbed Master Somme with the Court of Master Somms, Mark managed the wine and cocktail programs at Comey in Oakland for five years, earning accolades for both programs. All the while, Mark has also been studying in the Master of Wine program and even earned the title of Best Sommelier in USA in June of 2022. Mark has taught the French Wine Scholar, Italian Wine Scholar, and Spanish Wine Scholar programs, as well as the Wine Business Management Program at the San Francisco Wine School. Today, Mark is a sommelier at the prestigious Wrigley Mansion in Phoenix. Welcome to the show, Mark. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Of course, and congratulations again to one of our newest master sommeliers in the USA. So incredible. So exciting. It's, uh, it's a, a long, a long time coming. It's <laughs> finally done. It sure is. Uh, <laughs> Just for our listeners, Mark and I know each other from from the Bay Area, where Mark ran a, a study group and tasting group for for many years. So we've all seen him studying firsthand, and this is so incredibly well deserved. And we're all so excited for you. Thank you. Anyway, Mark, today we're going to talk uh, exactly about that, about wine education. But before we dive into today's discussion, tell us a little bit about your journey from a degree in Buddhist studies to now becoming, you know, a master sommelier and hopefully soon a master of wine. Sure. I studied religion in college, uh, double major religious studies, minor in philosophy and logic. Um, I wanted to work in interreligious dialogue. So coming from a Catholic background, I went to pursue my master's in Buddhist studies, again, focusing uh, as kind of a foundation for um, interreligious dialogue, studying on comparative logic. Um, I was really fascinated by the juxtaposition of Thomas Aquinas, who integrated the you know so-called pagan fathers like Aristotle and Socrates into the Catholic Church, and Jetsonkapa doing more or less the same thing in the Gallic tradition in Buddhism at more or less the same time. Uh, Aquinas was the late 13th century, Jetsonkapa was the mid-14th century, and both of them chose to use debate as the primary form of pedagogy for their respective orders that they founded going on down through the ages. And that to me was just too kind of fascinating a topic to, to give up. Um, I ultimately decided not to pursue my PhD. And so I'd been studying logic for a couple of years and a lot of kind of highfalutin, not really boots on the ground sort of issues. So when I got out of grad school, I felt a little bit lost. Um, and my parents had always had a garden when I was growing up. And so I thought a great way to kind of reconnect would be to plant a garden. Um, when stuff started being ready to harvest at the garden, I realized that I was, you know, 24 and a half and didn't know how to cook. So I started learning how to cook. Eventually that led to a role at a local kind of all sustainable, all organic concept called Glen's Garden Market in DC. Um, 
I, their, their opening beverage director walked out 15 minutes, he literally snuck out the back door 15 minutes before close on opening day. And I was fresh from grad school reading like four to six books a week, every week wow. for two years. And I thought to myself, you know what, I bet I can learn this fast enough that I can be useful. Uh, and so I, I signed up for a WSET two class. My wine anniversary is May 19th, 2013. Um, and I found over the next uh, really half a decade that every dollar that I spent in wine education uh, or tasting groups or whatever it was would typically come back to me five times over in about wow. 14 to 18 months. And I rode that curve for a number of years, mm-hmm. culminating in positions in the Bay Area, like my role at Comey, where that curve kind of finally leveled out. But it, it the wine education treated me very, very well. Um, I decided uh, I wanted to be, you know, as like a 24-year-old kid, right? I decided I wanted to be the best whatever that meant. And so I did my research and saw there was this master sommelier thing and there was this master of wine thing. And at the time, master Cicerone as well. And I said, well, you know, there's whatever, 250 master psalms. This was 10 years ago. There's, you know, 350 masters of wine. There's only four people that are both. And there's only 13 master Cicerones. So I'm going to get all three. Ambitious. (laughs) Well, you know, like I said, if you're going to do a thing, uh, do it do it all the way, I think. Yeah. And I guess you had the training of the studying from your degrees and, and that discipline, right? Absolutely. So I, I bounced around. I did WSET 2, then WSET 3, then my intro, then started my WSET diploma, my certified, finished my WSET diploma, um, then did my advanced course, then my advanced SOM, then stage one MW, then started sitting masters through the court, and then stage two MW. And then uh, ultimately in the summer of 2022, due to various pandemic reschedulings, if I had gone through with it, I would have been the first person in history to sit the master sommelier and master of wine examinations back to back in the same week in different cities on different sides of the country. Uh, And I decided to not do that, <laughs> which sounds like torture, yep. uh, which necessitated <laughs> yeah. taking a little bit of time off from the MW program, uh, which I'm looking forward to, to kind of re-entering and starting next year. And then hopefully with you know, a little bit more time under my belt to focus. And I know we'll talk about this later about how those domains are different, but hopefully with a little bit more time right. to focus on the MW domains, uh, hopefully that'll be some enjoyable years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say, Mark, since 2013, when you set out to, to be the best and be you know a master, you've, you've certainly come quite a, a long way in accomplishing that. And it's, it's pretty incredible everything you've done. You. So we're excited to talk to you in this episode specifically about the role of wine education education in the U.S. wine market. Uh, As you mentioned, you've gone through so many of the different education programs. You're one of the few people in the U.S. who's actually done all of the Wine Scholar Guild programs, studied in the MW, and gone through the full Court of Master Sommeliers, as well as completed all W sets, including sake. Uh, So you've really had firsthand knowledge of how all of these schools of thought and, and schools of studying work from both the scholar uh, and the teacher perspective, which is incredible. So our three key takeaways for today's masterclass and what we're excited to learn from you, Mark, in this episode are number one, what are some of the key differences between the Court of Master Psalm CMS and Master of Wine MW program and other schools and certifications in wine education? Number two, what is the importance of wine education today, specifically in the U.S. market? And finally, number three, how has wine education you know, evolved in the U.S. market? So 
For starters, let's talk about the Court of Master Sommeliers and the MW program. Those are the two most prominent, I would say, and most internationally recognized as well. Tell us a little bit about what each title represents. I think it's probably best to, to dig a little bit into the history of the organizations. I think that's a pretty quick cipher. Um, so the Master of Wine was originally founded as a British trade organization under the auspices of the, um, the Society of Vintners, which is an organization that goes back hundreds of years through Royal Charter to 1340-something, um, really as a way of uh, post-World War II you know, the British trade was suffering a bit, not just because of all of the economic issues associated with the damage of World War II, the loss of young men, but also the sommelier profession as a whole was kind of going down, right? We'd just seen some some real paradigm shifts in the world of wine, not just in, in political mm-hmm. boundaries being redrawn, but also like in 1942, I think it's useful to remember that most wine was still sold in barrel um, rather than bottle. So the role of the sommelier had changed. You had this gap in World mm-hmm. War II, and they really wanted to find a way to bring the industry together and sort of start elevating people at a high level. So the first exams are 1953. The Institute of Masters of Wine is 1955. Over the subsequent decade, they kind of come to realize that while what they study, um, which I had, I think it was Mary Margaret McCammick is an MW, uh, said very, very well that the most succinct way to think about it is that the uh, the MW is how and why, and the CMS is who and what and when. Okay. So how and why in the MW and who, what, and when in the Court of Master Sommeliers. Exactly. And the MWs kind of realized that, I think, very early on. Um, and because they wanted to help the hospitality industry, help the service industry, and also realize that their program, as great as it was, was fundamentally not suited for people that are working in restaurants five nights a week, right? They're a, they're a trade organization. They're dealing with retailers, right. with importers, with distributors. Um, and so they proctored the very first master sommelier exams in, I believe it was 1969, I think. Flash forward a decade later, mm-hmm. and they found the organization, the Court of Master Sommeliers in Europe, again, originally British, um, 1977. It's grown from there, of course. Um, okay. And the, I guess the, the kind of broad way that I think about it is, you know, for me, one thing that I love to teach people is remember that you know, it's really easy when you're studying wine to get sucked into facts and appellations and what's the minimum residual sugar there right. and what's the minimum time in oak here. And fundamentally, what wine really is, is it's communities of people, mm-hmm. right? Without people actually handling these things, then you don't have anything in a bottle, you don't have anything in a barrel. And all of these rules and legislations and appellations, what they really are is they're conversations amongst communities of people, some of them very tight-knit. Right. Right. If you look at a community like the Chateau Mayante OC, you're dealing with maybe 30 producers, mm-hmm. right? Those guys all probably know each other one way or another. Many of them are probably even related to each <laughs> other some way if you go far enough back. But that community of Chateau Mayant not only has to interact with the community that is Sancerre, a much larger appellation just up the river, they also have to interact in some way through the market with the community that is Napa Valley. Right. Um, and so... For the CMS, I think it's a lot more focused on those people. Mm -hmm. And because it is also in restaurants, it's focused on how you take care of people, how you represent these these people who are represented by these bottles. Whereas the MW is, for me, very much more of a a process-driven, a little bit more abstract 
but but you you really need to dig into understanding the complete role of cause and effect from the dirt all the way through to the finished product mm-hmm. on a shelf or the cork being pulled in a restaurant. There's a lot of complementarity and a lot of overlap. Um, I found studying and pursuing both that the point really where it was no longer feasible to meaningfully study for both was stage two in the MW. At that point, I found that the type of information I needed in terms of international wine law distribution models, you know, major, major cork Mm -hmm. purveyors and brands and how the different lines function, learning about, you know, oxygen transfer rates and how that applies, you know, everything, the history of it in New Zealand through Australia to how that even has impacts on sake production. Right. Right. Um, that was the point where it was like, oh, as a sum, I understand the styles of wine. Mm-hmm. And because I've been studying through what we said this whole time, I understand well enough viticulture and vitification. But the, the MW exam is divided into five parts, or the theoretical exam is anyway. You've got a paper on viticulture, everything that happens until you get grapes to the winery door. A paper on vinification, everything that happens from winery door until bottling. A paper on, they call it handling of wine, but it's basically trade. Everything that happens from when a cork goes into the bottle to when that bottle and how that bottle gets to its end consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, then they have a, a paper as well on current events. Um, sorry about That's that. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, from from the outside perspective, and I've studied through um, W set up to, to level three, so nowhere near as, as far as you, but I have had some exposure to that program and also spoken to some other MWs. There's really a lot more... Uh, business theoretical research involved in the MW, whereas, like you said, with the the Court of Master Sommeliers, it's about understanding the regions, the wines uh, from around the world to properly represent those uh, specifically in a, in a restaurant setting as it's designed for. And, you know, I think as humans, we look in all parts of life, we look for things that help us understand the world. So we look for ways to break down things and understand information. Um, and I think so much of wine education for both programs does come down to that as well. How do we create systems of thought processes that allow us you know, to understand such a dense and complex topic? And that's often how I think about wine education as well. But Mark, I'd love to get your perspective since you've gone through both of the programs, you've worked in restaurants as well. Um, what do, how do you think both titles are used in the field, like in the market, specifically in the U.S.? Like, for a master SOM versus an MW, how are they marketing themselves or utilizing those titles once they've achieved those credentials? I think it's not possible to answer that question without talking about the the sommelier documentary. Because of the two credentials, you had one that suddenly burst into popular consciousness through a very Mm well-made film that may or may not have aged well based on subsequent events. Uh, We'll just leave it at that. And so all of a sudden, everybody had this image where it was kind of like the the answer to the rock star chef, you know, like we got our iron Mm -hmm. chef in the late nineties and became popular. We had Gordon Ramsay, we had, you know, bar rescue and all of these other TV shows just kind of saturating the public with what it's like to be in restaurants or a a largely fictionalized version of restaurants. And, and the, the sound documentary was kind of the pendulum swinging, right? Where it's like, well, it's been 15 years that we've been watching people put things on plates and watching people have dirty walk-ins or whatever else isn't there a little bit more to this, right? And I think it's useful to note that a lot of those programs were really filmed from a back-of-house perspective. Mm-hmm. I, d- I don't recall ever seeing any of them where front-of-house employees really from that era uh, look particularly spectacular. Uh, and so I think that the, the public was maybe ready to get a glimpse of the other side. Meanwhile, the MWs have always been a little bit 
more pragmatic. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so my example here is is very often you look at master sommeliers and a master sommelier might be the general manager of a restaurant. They might be the corporate beverage director for a restaurant group and they travel around the country. They train people. They lead staff education. They fly in for a wine dinner here. They lead a group of clients on a trip over there. Um you know, mm-hmm. people that make the selections of what wines you have available on most major airlines, the vast majority of those are master sommeliers. Even if, if you just kind of look at that perspective of what people are drinking when they're in transit from coast to coast is chosen by master sommeliers. Meanwhile, like the person in charge of the bottling plant at Gallo is an MW. Mm. Um, my original uh, WSET diploma instructor, Carolyn Herman, is an MW, and she at the time was in the TTB department for label enforcement, right? Like making certain that when somebody puts something on a label, it's actually accurate, right? There are MSs that run estates. Um, People, I know there's MSs that run estates in Bordeaux. Um, You know, people kind of MS adjacent like the Lynn Proctor, right? Have wineries in Napa. Carlton McCoy, you know, Heights. Exactly. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. MWs more Mm -hmm. often end up running distribution, they run import books. Um, I find them more often on that kind of nuts and bolts side of things. Um, there's a huge, the, the IMW even put on a tasting of wines where the entire theme of the tasting was wines made by MWs. Wow. Right. It is a, is an incredibly common thing for an MW or a winemaker, a winemaker to seek to distinguish themselves by coming an MW or an MW through their passion that leads to them being an MW choosing to go on to make wine. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So it's more of just like, it's different perspectives, I think, on, on yeah. the same thing is the MWs, I think, more often have this desire to get their hands dirty in the nuts and bolts of making the thing. Whereas the MSs very often have this desire to get their hands dirty in the absolute polish and refinement of serving the thing, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the master right. sommelier is fundamentally around this beautiful moment of service around someone else where, you know, one thing that I've said for a long time is, is our art is about curation, right? We should mm-hmm. on some level be invisible, in the guest interaction, because what we're really doing is we're there as an avatar, a representative of the winemaker and the community of people and that however many centuries it may or may not be of history that led to that juice in that bottle. And we're trying to match that one way or another to a moment and a mood of another person. Mm -hmm. And our skill there is at its best, uh, most shown when it is most invisible to the guest. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I also think about the sommelier on the floor of a restaurant as more of a, it's a performance in a way. I mean, you have to think on your feet, interact with the guests. Like you said, be that avatar, like that expression for the wine and everything that went into that bottle as seamlessly as, as possible and really use all the knowledge that you you've gained in your, in your studies in real time and on your feet. Whereas with, you know, maybe the MW title and people that take that course uh, and apply their skills and knowledge in, like you said earlier, maybe a more, I don't want to say practical, but uh, a more nine to five <laughs> position, maybe we might sure. say, or um, some more traditional roles or some other aspects of the industry. So I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Wine to Wine Business Forum. Everything you need to get ahead in the world of wine. Supersize your business network. Share business ideas with the biggest voices in the industry. Join us in Verona on November 13 to 14, 2023. Tickets available now at pointwine.net. 
let's talk a little bit about evolution of both of these. You know, we had the first MW exam, you mentioned 1953, and then the first um, Master Sommelier examination, 1969, both in the UK. You know, obviously the world has changed quite a bit since mid-century, uh, mid-20th century. So talk to us a little bit about how these programs have been adapted and also how have they evolved for the U.S. market specifically as they came uh, over the pond? Sure. Um, I mean, I think that the the largest, the, the most significant, probably pre-COVID anyway, adaptation of both of them was the moment where each organization really ceased to be a British organization. I mean, because of the British Empire and that legacy, there's even been a recent book published about more or less how the British Empire established the global wine trade. Um, a really, really good read. Um, and the first non-British MW wasn't until 1988, right? A full 35 years after the founding. Wow. The first uh, non-British Master Sommelier was back in 1973. Uh, Master Sommelier named Eddie Osterland, who sadly just passed away um, very recently. I believe it was last week. Um, mm. But the moment where the Master Sommeliers really begin to be a part of American culture is Fred Dame passing all three parts on his first try, the first person ever to do so in 1984. And he came back and was kind of like, you know, and this is somewhat recounted in the Psalm documentary, but it was more like, okay, is that it? Like, what do I do now? <laughs> and so his idea yeah. was to get other people involved. And a lot of the real key figures of late 80s, 90s wine culture in America were that first generation that was more or less recruited by Fred, right? Your Larry Stones, your Evan mm -hmm. Goldstein, even you know, to an extent, um, people kind of elsewhere in their circle, right? You trace the lineage and you have Larry Stone to Raj Parr to Emily Wines, who very recently was the chairman of the board, right? Like this is a really kind of key period. Um, right. And, you know, the Americans went after everything like they do with a great deal of gusto. And so now we have 275, 274 uh, global members of the Court of Master Sommeliers after Master mm -hmm. Oslo passed away. And 170, 100. 169, sorry, I keep on having to update that count. 169 of them are American. Wow. And so, you know, even to this day, right, an organization that begins as British and grows out of another organization that begins as British is now really geographically, anyway, the locus of the organization. We outnumber the non-American master sommeliers by, what is that, 1.6 to 1, 1.7 to 1, which is a pretty, pretty impressive feat. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say so. In terms of adaptation to the U.S. market, I think that that's also a good historical moment to look at, right? You've got Robert Parker coming up in 1982, especially, and then subsequently throughout the 80s. Like, this is the real decade when the locus, the global balance shifted from England to the U.S., when the U.S. became the foremost wine importer in the world, I think was at some point in the late 80s or early 90s. And so, in a way... You know, talking about how organizations change, you know, the master sommeliers have really grown in influence over the last 10 years. But I think it's it's worth noting that that the American market started driving how wine was sold and then eventually made worldwide going back to, again, that kind of period in the 80s. Now, how have they been adapting lately? Mm. Um, I mean, the MWs are really in, in what I think is a really fascinating kind of parallel, right? So I just mentioned 274 total MSs worldwide, 169 of them are American. Uh, meanwhile, currently we have about 414 MWs worldwide, right. 45. Wow. So yeah, much different type of ratio there. Absolutely. So the MW is a lot more, a lot more international and global of a program. Yes. And also, I mean, to that point, because I, I think that that is baked into what they were made to do, right? Like the MW was, mm. 
built to serve the British trade. I remember, I don't know if it's still there, but the, the tagline on my WSET diploma textbooks was shaping the wine professional, if I remember right, which is this very like British, like mm. we have the answer, we will impose it upon the rest of the world and the rest of the world will be better for it kind of perspective. Right. <laughs> and I guess that just hasn't, you know, I think that there was so much international interest in the MW program versus the CMS because the MWs really drive a global perspective on wine. Um, you know, the, the CMS, I've said as well for a long mm-hmm. time, we focus really truly on the market segment that the MWs would call fine wine, which is about 2% of production worldwide. And I think if mm-hmm. you look at the way that, that that boundary is drawn, it's something like an average price of over $7 US a bottle, which gives you an idea of, of how low prices wine sells for in most of the world. You know, in the MW program, I've been blinded on canned rosé muscat from Australia, and I've been blinded on yellowtail chardonnay, and I've been blinded on class growth Bordeaux with age, and I've been blinded on Dom Perignon with age, right? They really, really want to cover the entirety of wine at every price point and every market. I mean, there's a recent exam that I read where they had... Uh, they had put Villagne Franc, which is probably the most unfamiliar style in the States. It's a, an iconic Cabernet Franc style from Southern Hungary. And that was a wine in the mm-hmm. exam, right? They really, wow. for all of these people that were elsewhere That's in the really world. That's really stretching it. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it's for, for Central Europe, it is the local Cabernet region, more or less, right? Right. Um, but for all these people like the Brockoviches of the world in New Zealand and, and everywhere else, this program offered you, if you were in winemaking or if you were in the wine trade, this was the way that you really could get your global education. Um, mm-hmm. Learn the nuts and bolts of how to do anything in the wine industry outside of a restaurant. And I think that's part of why, right. especially in, in parts of the world where restaurant culture is still very much seen as, a, I think, a little bit more of a servant class, um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. still to this day. Um, I know that in Europe, in many markets, sommeliers makes anywhere from two thirds to half of what they typically would in the U.S. Also, you know, social mm. welfare and everything else plays a role in that. Where they have, anywho, right. that's a different conversation. Um, and so, <laughs> I think that there was a lot more impetus to push that more academic and abstract side internationally, and people didn't want to work in restaurants. It's also less. I think, that makes a lot of sense. I yeah. think it's less highly viewed. Uh, you know, like master sommelier in the United States for a long time at least for the last decade, it was very much kind of a rock star position, right? Like a master chef or an Indian chef or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And a master sommelier in Europe, I've always thought, was viewed a little bit more like most other masters, like a master carpenter or a master baker. Um, and I think you see this, uh, for example, in France, where you have the meilleur ouvrier de France, um, the, the best craftsman of France, and they have it for wagon makers and they have it for people who make clothes and they have it for pastry. And of course, they have a sommelier. But it's lumped into craftsmanship, to handiwork, effectively, if that makes sense. And I think that's just a a very Mm -hmm. fundamentally different view on the profession and what it means to be masterful than it is in the States, where it kind of, due to a group of people and the publicity around the movie, kind of ascended into this almost celebrity status. Totally. Yeah, it seems like, in a way, the the Master Psalm title has evolved in the U.S. to be a figurehead for the wine industry, in a sense, like a wine celebrity. And the MW has evolved to become uh, a title that can be applied to a number of different professions, whether it's winemaking, distribution, uh, education, 
sales, you know, so many, so many different things. I mean, that's how I've seen the the roles kind of evolve uh, in my own experience in terms of the MSs and MWs I've interacted with in the, in the U.S., yeah. Um, so, you know, Mark, just getting down to now, you know, we talk a lot about the next generation. It's hard yeah. to have a conversation about the state of the wine industry today without talking about next gen, who's drinking wine, how are we getting young people drinking wine? So as a wine educator yourself, how yeah. are we getting younger people into the classroom to study wine? What are, what are the trends of things you're observing when you're teaching about wine to this next generation of U.S. wine professionals? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on right now that is both exciting and worrisome, right? I think everybody's read the headlines that, I mean, number one, uh, we're seeing stuff like um, U.S. Department of Health changing the wording around their alcohol recommendations, right? The total number of drinks per week was recently dropped. They also changed the way that they phrase it. It was pointed out in a recent editorial that there was a clear shift, I think, in the 1960s or 70s when they talked about first limiting tobacco and then tobacco being a part of life but not recommended too much. And then at a certain point, they shifted language and started framing tobacco as just a fundamental threat to health. And it was pointed out that the recent language really adopts that that shift that they made in tobacco, but now applies it to alcohol, where it seems like the the future perspective of our government is going to be, well, alcohol is a thing that you can do, but it's bad for you. Right. Which is it's scary. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not encouraging. Uh, I believe there's ample uh, evidence that it's also not true, but at the same time, right, we see that there are younger people are drinking less and less wine than ever before. And yet market values are relatively stable. So they're trading mm-hmm. up. Um, drinking better wine, just less of it, which is going to be a huge, huge shift in the industry and what kinds of market plans and what kinds of wineries and brands can survive and how they survive. Um, But also we're at this moment where for the first time there was enough of a break between the generations Mm -hmm. in drinking culture that the new generation goes in almost like a blank slate, right? We we have a really useful conversation in the topic around hybrid varieties and their use in wine and how what generations ago with a pure French perspective was considered to be a completely abominable flavor is now recognized as a different flavor, right? Mm-hmm. right? Like these are not wines that taste bad. They're wines that taste different. But when you have people that never had the connotation that different was bad, then you find them drinking all kinds of stuff, right? Co-ferments are coming back. Piquette is coming yeah. back. All of these ancillary categories that were kind of rooted out, uh, really, especially, I think, post-phylloxera. Um, all of these categories are making a comeback because people are open to flavors that they've never been open before. Yeah, I just got an email from my the tasting group I'm a part of uh, for Monday that the theme is co-ferments. So, I mean, there, there you go. It's, it's definitely, and I'm in, in the Bay Area, so more likely to see that here than maybe other parts of the country. But still, like you said, I mean, that these different styles that haven't uh, been as mainstream before are, are definitely starting to become more and more popular. Right. And so as an educator, I think that people have, they come in with fewer preconceptions and a lot more just over the years that I have been teaching, 
at least in a more professional capacity, started teaching about five years ago. Um, I'd been teaching through the tasting group that you mentioned before that. But there was a point where I noticed that a lot of the people that were younger and still coming to wine classes asked a lot more questions. Whereas I, I had any number of people in my classes who maybe they had a job in biotech or they had just retired from mm -hmm. software and they were taking wine education to learn what the best things were for them to enjoy in the time that they had left and possibly to build a great cellar, whether that was, you know, to leave as a legacy or whatever. And that's a very, there's a lot of preconceived notions, good and bad, baked into pursuing wine education with that intent. Right. Whereas a lot of the young people that were coming in were coming in because they wanted to drink better when they were out and about. They wanted to know more so that they could drink better and be more informed with what they were doing, which I think is, it's just a, again, it's a fundamentally different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw more and more of that as time went on, right? Like all of a sudden it's like all of the guardrails around topics like Brett or mousiness. It, wine's not just white, red, and rosé anymore. It's orange and amber, and there's all of these other things. Um, it's like all the guardrails came down seemingly all mm -hmm. at once over like a five or six year period. And now we're standing in this vast open plane of style. I mean, that gets into a different issue, right? But at exactly that moment, then you have a lot of things that lead people to not trust people that might have experience to kind of give them some perspective. I don't know. I don't want to be super pessimistic, but it's, it's, it's an interesting time where things that have been considered to be technical flaws for hundreds of years are suddenly pursued as, as a particular flavor. Right. There's not as many standards. I mean, the standards are, are changing too in yeah. terms of what is being put into a bottle and sold. Exactly. And the consumer preferences are adapting accordingly. And we've seen that a lot through the natural wine movement. I mean, I went to a tasting in April and one of the wines that was poured for me, I couldn't believe it was being bottled and sold. It was so, you know, as te technically incredibly flawed, but also for me, the flavor profile was undrinkable. But here they were pouring this wine to to people in the room that were enjoying it. So it's who that just wasn't my preference. I guess we can, we can look at it that way right. and say it is someone else's preference. But uh, I imagine as more of a classically trained educator, there is going to be some need to adapt how we're teaching about the category as those styles become more ubiquitous and, and more mainstream. Yeah, and we're seeing more diversity of flavor and, and the, the paradigms that people have to think and talk about wine, even down to the words that we use, are all in this period of, of really incredible flux. And it's going to be pretty pretty fun to see how it all shakes out. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Mark, we're coming to the end of our time. I mean, I feel like we could talk for several more hours, but uh, at least for this episode, maybe we'll have to do a part two because there's definitely a few things I wanted to ask you that we didn't get a chance to dive into. But before we end the episode, we have our rapid fire quiz where we ask our guests three questions that will help our listeners better understand the U.S. market. So question number one, and please try to answer in one sentence or so. What is your number one tip for mastering the U.S. wine market? Understand your point of differentiation. You have to have some kind of a unique proposition for the client that you're trying to sell the wine to uh, in an era where more and more wines are organic or sustainable or biodynamic or native yeast or unfined or unfiltered or whatever else. There needs to be something that you understand that makes your wine special, unique, and different because otherwise you're just competing on price and that's a surefire way to lose, if not now, then later. Absolutely, that's really great advice. Question number two, what is something you would have told your younger wine professional self 
about selling wine or about wine in the U.S. market? I'll speak here to restaurants, and that would be remember that you're selling a moment, not just juice. Mood, feeling, occasion, these are as important, if not more important, than grape variety and vintage when you're interacting with a guest. Mm, I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's coming back to what you said earlier, too. Wine is about people. And finally, number three, uh, we all travel a lot in this world. And I know you've been bouncing around quite a bit from Sicily and other places this fall alone. So what is your favorite travel hack when you're out in the market and, and working? I think it's really important for your health to understand sleep and how it works. Um, so for me, melatonin to offset jet lag is key. Um, uh, GABA is key to make you get better quality sleep, uh, magnesium, right? There are a handful of supplements mm. that on the back end before you go to bed will really, really help you adapt a lot faster and help you get better restorative rest. I always find if I travel too much, I get sick because I'm, my sleep cycle is off. Um, and so being able to combat that very deliberately, I think is really, really yeah. important. And the other thing too, that's, that's kind of tied into the sleep is as painful as it is, if you are going to be in a market for more than two or three days, always sleep with the windows open because the best way that you're going to be able to adapt is with that natural sunlight. Ah, oh, I never heard that one. I like that one. Sleep with the windows open. Okay, great. Not tip. necessarily the windows, but the, the blinds, right? The blinds, so in the morning okay. you get woken up full sunlight rather than. I was going to say that might be hard to do in the winter time, but okay. The blinds. All right. I like that one. Great. Well, thank you, Mark, so much for being here today. How can our listeners connect with you? Uh, you can find me probably the best way right now. I'm on Instagram at, and this is my slightly embarrassing, many years old uh, Instagram name, but I am at DC Samurai. That's S-O-M-M-U-R-A-I. That is probably the, the most surefire way to find me. Great. Well, I we love a little wordplay. <laughs> I learned at some point that the root uh, for the word samurai comes from the verb that means to serve. And I felt like that was a pretty good play for sommelier as well. Yeah. Of course, less glamorous is that sommelier comes from the root word meaning beast of burden, but you know, you pick your battles. Absolutely. <laughs> That's for next. That's our next episode. <laughs> we'll dive into the etymology more. Thanks, Mark. It was great to have you here. You as well. Cheers. Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass U.S. Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.